This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore a thread of activism and social justice that stretches back through Martin Luther King Jr. to Mohandas K. Gandhi, all the way to the Sermon on the Mount. When we talk with Sean Castleberry about a book that he co-wrote with Rashida Graham Washington, Soul Force, Seven Pivots Toward Courage, Community, and Change. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Sean Castleberry. He's a writer, speaker, activist, and he's the executive director of Mission Year, a national faith-based justice-centered organization focused on developing young leaders and making a collective impact for change in urban communities. He has a passion for mentoring young adults and mobilizing people around issues of racial and economic justice, particularly issues of mass incarceration and youth violence. He has a master's degree in intercultural studies from Asbury Theological Seminary. He has a doctor of ministry degree in building beloved community from McCormick Theological Seminary here in Chicago. He's committed to speaking truth to power and equipping people of faith to be prophetic witnesses in the world. He's written several books, including God is in the City, Encounters of Grace and Transformation, and a new book that will be discussed discussing today, Soul Force, Seven Pivots Toward Courage, Community, and Change, which he co-wrote with Rashida Graham Washington. Sean Castleberry, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks. It's good to be here. So I'm very intrigued by what you are trying to do in this book. And in order to get to that, I would like to, first of all, talk about this partnership that you have with Rashida Graham Washington and how you two came to write this book together, Soul Force. Yes, we are close friends. We are colleagues. We do similar work around transformation and community work. And we were in South Africa together and we were both tired Honestly, you know, there was a lot of things going on in our world and uh, both in our city uh, around violence and around just the the everyday struggles and then nationally dealing with a lot that was going on in our world. And we were tired and we went to connect with local South African leaders and have conversations around similar struggles that we were facing. We talked about racism and what that looks like in each context and poverty and uh, injustice, but When we got to Robben Island, everything kind of changed. We were walking around the island. We went to the quarry where prisoners had to labor all day in the the blistering sun. And then we went to the cell where Nelson Mandela was held for 18 years. And so for listeners who may be unfamiliar with this term Robben Island and may not know the geography of South Africa, what are we talking about when we say Robben Island? It's an island about a 30-minute boat ride off the coast of Cape Town. Um, South Africa. And it's where dissidents, troublemakers, people who opposed the apartheid system were sent. And largely in the South African language, uh, colored and black members were mostly put there on this island. But really those that spoke out 
were sent there. And Nelson Mandela spent 18 years, and we were we got to go to, to the cell, which was about the size of a small bathroom. And we were learning about just his life and his legacy and how he came out of that experience with with no bitterness or chip on his shoulder, but with a, a passion for reconciliation, for love and for truth. And we were inspired. And from that moment, we started really talking together, collaborating together, figuring out how do we live this stuff out. And Mandela uh, did it with uh, a community of people. And so we we just started doing things together. We, sh- we showed up at events together. We are now on each other's boards um, and we started collaborating. And, and this book came out of that common experience and out of that desire to live out of a different place. And Rashida Graham Washington is actually not able to be with us on this interview because she's currently traveling back from South Africa on another visit. But we should mention that she's executive director of an organization called Communities First Association, and that's a faith-based nonprofit committed to asset-based community development. And we'll talk a little bit about what asset-based community development is as we get on in our conversation. But So you two were standing thousands of miles away. You're both from the Chicago area. You've known each other. And you, you go thousands of miles away and you have this inspiration. And it sounds to me like the inspiration is both to try and gather a tribe around you of like-minded people. But it also, as I was looking through the book Soul Force, it also struck me that this was largely to try and counter burnout. You mentioned that both of you were very tired. What had tired you out? Just the daily trauma and the heaviness of the issues that we are often immersed in. I work largely in urban communities. I live in an urban community that we're dealing with a lot of systemic injustice, but also the polarization and the the divisions that have erupted. And And I think they've been there for a long time, but they really came to the surface in the last year and a half. And trying to say, how do we bring people together across these divides? A lot of the work that we do, we're bringing people together across the theological and political spectrum. And we're encouraging people to stay at the table and, and interact. And then we're realizing that on both sides, there's people that say, I don't want to be at this table if they're there. And, and so it's really interesting to have to fight on both sides to to get people to stay at the table, to engage across these deep divisions. And so both of us, we have bridge builder hearts. Our, our hearts are to build bridges between all divisions that we see in our society. And so it's tiring work. It's tiring work to constantly try to reach out, to be misunderstood, to face backlash, all of that. Now, you mentioned that your organization, Mission Year, works in urban communities, minority communities. I want to ask you a little bit about that. But I, but so you're a white male. Rashida is African-American. And so already you are working against the grain because that's not normally an association, an alliance that people would expect to try and enact social change. Am, am I right about that? Yes. And, and that's what makes this book, that makes our relationship very strong and powerful because we're able to bring in two different perspectives that you don't normally get side by side. We talk about a lot of times you can't have a match unless you have two different surfaces. And so when you bring these perspectives together, like it creates something new and different and it challenges each of us. If Rashida was here, she would talk about how I'm her margin and how a lot of times we talk about going to the margins and how Jesus calls us to go to the margins and to the marginalized. 
And oftentimes when we're saying that, we think of, well, ourselves, people in who are white or middle class and us going to the margin. And that's where people of color are. And that's where difference is. Well, Rashida flips that around and says, you're my margin. Like, I feel comfortable in urban communities, but it's actually having to go into white spaces and be the only minority voice there. That's where I, that's my margin. And that's uncomfortable for me. What I love about that is that there's the spirit of James Cone in that. If you think about James Cone's Black Theology of Liberation, there is a lostness to whiteness in America because of systemic racism, because of the ways in which we have utilized power, which does marginalize us in some ways. And uh, that's not a victimization. That's not saying, you know, that we're in some way that we're on the outs. We're not. There's still a lot of power concentrated in whiteness in America. But I love that Rashida, and I wish that she was here, and I would love to have you both back to come and talk to me again about these issues together. But I, I love the fact that she sees that possibility of reaching the lostness in you as a mission field. Am I hearing that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's a redefining of poverty, right? When you, know, you grow up in a, a neighborhood that's been stigmatized as a poor neighborhood or a bad neighborhood, it's easy to internalize those things. But as someone who has gone into the neighborhood and seen the the strengths and seen the gifts, seen the amazing spirit of community, the courage, the ability to not give up, the resilience uh, in the face of such overwhelming odds, you start to see actually this is not a poor neighborhood. This There's a lot of resource here. And then thinking about my own upbringing, yeah, there's places I'm impoverished because I don't know what it's like to really have to push myself against the forces uh, that are coming at me. Because a lot of the forces in the world are at my back. I'm get, being pushed pushed through by that force of privilege and just that extra support that I don't have to learn those same kind of skills unless I intentionally put myself in that position. All of a sudden, now I have to learn, how do you keep hope in the midst of injustice? Well, tell me a little bit about Mission Year and the work that you're doing there. We are drawing uh, young adults, calling young people to commit at least a year of their life and move in solidarity into urban communities to learn, to partner with the existing organizations and leaders who are there. And we're bringing people together in a way that creates something new. It creates new relationship, new opportunities, new learnings. We see all kinds of transformation that comes from this kind of partnership. And what got you involved in Mission Year? I felt a call to the city and uh, in seminary when I was uh, I was there. I had always kind of had thought there was three options for me if, if I was interested in ministry: a pastor, youth pastor, or missionary. And I went to seminary kind of with his questions. Well, I know I don't want to be a pastor. I was a youth pastor, and that wasn't quite what I felt like I, I wanted to do. I guess I must be a missionary. But as I started taking classes, I took an urban anthropology class, and we read a book by John Perkins. It was all about how Christians were moving into urban communities, partnering up with the existing community and being a part of the change that was there. And I had had this aching about racial and economic justice, but didn't know what to do with it. And I had grown up with, with it because I had lived in a, a segregated community. It was always like, there's something not right here, but it was always seemed like a peripheral issue to my faith until I was in seminary. And I realized that was, was not a peripheral issue. That That is central to God's heart uh, for justice. And that's when I started learning about community development, community organizing, that there were all these options and opportunities that I could go into. And so out of, out of seminary, I was able to connect with Mission Year and, and work for Mission Year. And I've been there the last 15 years out of its 21 years 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Sean Castleberry. Along with Rashida Graham Washington, he's written the new book, Soul Force, Seven Pivots Toward Courage, Community, and Change. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. I'm speaking today with Sean Castleberry. Along with Rashida Graham Washington, he's written the new book, Soul Force, Seven Pivots Toward Courage, Community, and Change. Sean Castleberry is a writer, speaker, activist, and he's the executive director of Mission Year, a national faith-based, justice-centered organization focused on developing young leaders and making collective impact for change in urban communities. A lot of my listeners are evangelicals, and a lot of them are conservative. And you've just said several words that I know are going to raise flags for them. So you talked, first of all, about social justice. You talked about community development and community organizing. I think a lot of them are going to listen to this and say, wow, this guy is a lefty. He's a Marxist. He's drank the social justice Kool-Aid. How do you respond to people who come to you and say, you can't do the gospel if you're trying to do the social gospel? Mm. I would tell them I'm one of them. I came from the evangelical tradition. It's it's still part of my tradition. It was helped form me. Um, I've been to the most conservative colleges and seminaries, and I've been to some of the most liberal seminaries. So I feel like I am, am actually able to to talk about the strengths and the blind spots on both sides. I did my doctoral work on the church's response to mass incarceration, and one of the interesting things that happened was one day I was going to visit a maximum security prison, and I was with the chaplain, and he said something really profound. He said, conservative Christians, they come into the prisons. They visit folks. They do Bible studies. They do evangelism. They bring in church worship services, but they won't advocate for justice uh, to change the laws that actually get people into prison. He said, and the liberals, they'll advocate for change for the laws, but they don't come into the prisons. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is so deep. And I said, you know, that's what I want to study for my doctoral work. And what I found is there's this huge ideological divide that causes us to act in ways that only represent part of the gospel. Another thing I found was there was a uh, in the in Ron Sider, the scandal of the evangelical conscience, he talks about how conservative Christians are the most likely group to object to having a neighbor of a different ethnicity. And so a lot of liberals would jump on that, right, and say, yeah, see, look at them. They're the most likely group to object. Well, I found another stat that showed that the more progressive sounding the Christian was, the least likely they were to actually have a neighbor of a different ethnicity. So what I found is we all have some things to work on. We all have blind spots. For the conservative, it's the blind spot is the systemic blind spot. Divided by Faith is another book that kind of highlights the conservative blind spot. We have, we have a hard time seeing the systems. 
when we see a social problem, we blame it on individual behavior rather than the social factors that might be causing that, right? So you see a student failing, well, they're just not trying hard enough, rather than saying, well, what is the school curriculum like? What teachers are they bringing in? What are some of the funding structures of this school versus other schools? All of these things, right? But the liberal has a blind spot as well, and it's that solidarity blind spot. We'll march, we'll go advocate, but don't expect us to actually be, and be neighbors with people that are different than us, right? So there's a hypocrisy on both sides, and it keeps us from seeing the whole gospel. And so what I would say to the conservative Christians is there's a beautiful aspect of our faith as we, we value the personal and the individual change. We, we value the personal responsibility and how do we remove the interior and internal barriers that keep us blocked from God's movement in our lives, the transformation. But I'd also say our brothers and sisters coming from liberal spaces, we bring a piece that's important too. And that is that systemic issue and recognizing that there are external barriers that also impact the individual. And so what we're really trying to get at with Soul Force is not to, to say Soul Force is a conservative thing. Soul Force is a liberal thing. No, to say the gospel encompasses all of it. It's holistic transformation, removing the internal barriers of fear, shame, anger, hatred. Those are just as significant as removing the external barriers of poverty, marginalization, and justice. And actually, they're interconnected. They're actually one in the same work. In your book, Soul Force, you and Rashida Graham Washington describe the method of moving past these barriers as pivots. And you have several, seven in fact, within the book. And one of them is fear to freedom. Another is barriers to bridge building and self-centeredness to solidarity. And so let's just start with those first three. So when, we, when we're talking about moving from fear to freedom, when we're talking about barriers to bridge building, we're talking about something that sounds, at least at first, like an internal emotional shift. But there are structures here also that get shifted in that pivot as well. And that, that's really what I want to kind of dig into is that, that intersection of the emotional and the structural. Yes. And so I think it's important that we, when, when you hear soul force, you know, some people aren't sure what we're talking about. We're actually borrowing this term from Martin Luther King and Gandhi, who first utilized this as a method of transformation. And it's based on that we have inner resources, we have inner reserves and a reservoir within ourselves at which we can bring about change. And so it connects the inner with the outer. And what we have to remember is Gandhi borrowed this from Jesus. When he read the Sermon on the Mount, his world was blown open. And he said, what Jesus is talking about here is a, a method of transformation that could be utilized in any sphere of life, in the public arena, as well as the personal. And that's why it, it, it works so well as a, a philosophy for Martin Luther King as well. And so what we want to do is we want to kind of lift up that tradition. I actually think that the faith of the civil rights movement is one of the most significant faith movements that we've seen in the world. And I was saying earlier, I, I grew up, I went to, uh, I was a, I'm a pastor's kid. I, I've been in the church all my life. I've gone to seminary, I've, all this stuff. I heard more about Martin Luther than I did Martin Luther King. As I've been studying Martin Luther King's theology, it's so rich. And there is this inner this inner drive that, that comes outward, and it connects the two. And we know as Christians that Jesus, when he was te teaching the disciples, he said, the kingdom of God is within you. 
It's not something you need to look outside yourself. Uh, we don't need to look to someone else. We don't need to look to you know someone else to come and lead our community, right? We have the kingdom of God within us. It's so close. We can draw from this inner reserve of the kingdom of God and the work that we're doing. And what we do in, in this book is try to emphasize, you know, a lot of times once I say Gandhi and, and Martin Luther King, most people are going to say, well, that's not me right? I'm not leading a political revolution against an empire, right? I'm just trying to get my kids, you know, safe, keep them safe. I'm trying to get them into college or get them off drugs or, you know, we have all of these, uh, these issues or, you know, someone might be listening and say, I'm just, a, I'm a teacher at a school, you know, uh, what can I do? Or I'm a pastor who I'm just in a small rural church and I'm trying to take care of my flock. Well, this is, this is a resource for all of us. You know, when you look at the civil rights movement, when you look at soul force, you usually don't see it as everyday power for everyday people. And that's what we really wanted to focus on. Like, how do we, sitting here as seminary students, as nonprofit leaders, how do we tap into this capacity that we have for courage, this capacity we have for building community and bringing about change wherever we are, whatever location, whatever vocation? Before we kind of go into the pivots, I wanted to definitely say that, that this is for anyone who's listening today, whatever you're going through, you can use soul force. You can develop your inner capacity for courage that will lead to external and social changes. And when I say social changes, I'm talking about anything that involves people. We've been discussing the various pivots that you're talking about in this book, and we've talked about the first few, fear to freedom, barriers to bridge building, and self-centeredness to solidarity. But then the back half is also worth discussing. So hurt to hope, consuming to creating, charity to change, and maintenance to movement. And I want to start, first of all, with that first one that I just mentioned, hurt to hope. I think that that's a little bit counterintuitive sometimes. If you think about somebody being thrown off of a horse, oftentimes the advice that they're given is you need to get right up back onto that horse. So there's going to be a moment where you have to do something in your mind and in your soul to be able to get back up onto that horse to get into that situation that just caused you physical pain. And as, as we're thinking about that, this is very much an act of faith, isn't it? To think that I could go to the situation that harmed me and it could be different next time. Is that what you mean by hope or do you mean something else? Yeah, I think that that's definitely a part of it. And I think for so many of us, you know, I said fear was, was one of the great enemies of, of faith, but hurt is what keeps us from healing, right? It, it keeps us from moving forward. Oftentimes we get stuck with hurt, with resentment, with bitterness that develops cancerous hatred, right? That then not only immobilizes us, it actually causes us to do more harm to others, right? We, we can end up lashing out as a result. This is where Soul Force is and the examples of Mandela and King are so instructive because they're the ones who are are helping us to to get over hurt and saying hurt is not a you don't have to ignore our hurt, but we also don't have to transfer it and keep transferring it on. We can transform it. And so transforming hurt to hope is a process. It's not overnight, and it takes working through our brokenness and th through our baggage. It's probably one of the hardest pivots. Rashida 
did a lot of writing on this chapter and, and she kept it till last. She said, this is going to be the hardest one. This is the hardest for her to, to talk about. And I know why, because it, it's hard to, to deal with our emotional pain and, and the hurt that we have experienced. And healing brings hope. Uh, because we don't have to continue cycles and patterns. We don't have to continue to carry things that keep us stuck. We get to lay those things down. We get to acknowledge that God loves us too, as well as our neighbors. And I think I'm a helper, I'm a doer, I'm a fixer, you know, all of these things. Um, but there have been many times in my time, the community has been there for me. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Sean Castleberry. He's a writer, speaker, activist, and he's the executive director of Mission Year, which is a national faith-based, justice-centered organization focused on developing young leaders and making a collective impact for change in urban communities. We're discussing a recent book that he co-authored with Rashida Graham Washington called Soul Force, Seven Pivots Toward Courage, Community, and Change. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Sean Castleberry. He's a writer, speaker, activist, and he's the executive director of the national organization Mission Year. We're talking about a recent book that he co-authored with Rashida Graham Washington called Soul Force, Seven Pivots Toward Courage, Community, and Change. Well, in all of these pivots, there's a lot of language that I think might be a little bit alien to some ears. So, bridge building and solidarity and creating, those are not often associated with Christian identity and Christian words, but implied in what you're talking about here, particularly in moving from hurt to hope, there are some very Christian concepts. So we we don't move from hurt to hope without forgiveness. We don't move from hurt to hope without reconciliation. And these things I think are implied in what you're talking about and what you what you and Rashida Graham Washington are writing about. They're not explicit, but I think the expectation is that if you're listening to the goal, which is to get to hope, that there are some things that you have to have as stepping stones along the way. Am I hearing that right? Absolutely. And I would say I would say that th- these words are actually central to our faith. The hope what we're talking about from hurt to hope that's the cross and the resurrection. This is deep in our faith, but what we don't often think about when we think of the cross and resurrection is how that can be a personal thing for us as well, that our hurt, our brokenness can actually be resurrected, can be redeemed, right? We can experience that hope, and not only for us individually, but as a community, as a nation, as a world, right? So this is very, very fundamental, I think, to our faith. The other words are as well, creating In the beginning, God created, right? God is a creator God. And so what we're actually doing is we're we're calling people to remember that that we're following a God who creates, who calls us into community, who calls us to hope. These are our words. Gandhi just was actually trying to teach Christians how to be Christian. I came across this story and um, E. Stanley Jones was a missionary to India and someone I grew up with admiring... um, a lot of my life, but I came across a book he wrote called Gandhi and Interpretation. And he 
goes to Gandhi and asks Gandhi, hey, as Christian missionaries who are trying to come into India to bring about change and to bring impact, what can we do? What would you, a Hindu, advise us Christians what we can do? And what Gandhi said was, first, live more like Jesus Christ. Second, make love your driving force because love is central to Christianity. Three, practice your faith without adulterating it or toning it down. What? Right? Gandhi schooled the missionaries to say, if you guys just lived more like Jesus and made love your central practice, like if you embodied it and that's what you talked about, how do we embody love as a community in the world? That would make the biggest, greatest impact. So often we put other things in the place of love hope creating, right? We have actually, we've set our faith aside. We've, we've allowed other things to become central. And so we get this kind of critique from Gandhi, which kind of hurts. But you know what? He's right. Love is our thing. Love is our thing. So we need to keep that central. We've, and, and so really soul force is getting back to love. It's getting back to letting love be our driving force in all that we do, that faith is more about cultivating and embodying love than it is about trying to prove who's right or wrong. Well, and in the book, Soul Force, in several of the chapters are talking about this kind of misplacing of our emphasis as Christians. But nowhere does that ring out as strongly as it does in your chapter from consuming to creating. And the notion that we are being told by the culture that we live in that if you have pain, if you have hurt, if you have fear, the answer to that is simply to buy your way out of it. And you counter this using some examples from the Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann and the sociologist Peter Block and some of the work that they've been doing. But I, I wonder, in terms of writing that chapter and in thinking about countering the narrative of the culture, what are some ways in which we can kind of do a spot check on ourselves to realize the ways in which we have misplaced our need to love, which is central to our Christian identity, with a need to buy? Hmm. Yeah, it, it's so deep. We've been hardwired. We, we see thousands of advertisements a day that are trying to convince us that we're not enough, right? And so you have a gospel that is all about saying you're enough. God loves you as you are. Everything you need is already here. Be content with what you have. Be content with the kingdom. Share what you have. Because even though it, you may feel like it's not enough, God will make a way. Where the loaves and the fishes, no the manna from it, heaven. Yeah, Exactly. Right? So that's our faith. So this consumerism is a direct attack against our trust in God and our dependence, living dependent on God. And actually, we've made dependency, we've made it a, a negative word, actually, in, in a lot of Christian circles now. We want to be independent, not dependent. And so it's hard for us now to even realize, to separate consumerism from our faith and to even realize we have to counter this narrative in ourselves. And I mean, sometimes I get down and when I buy something, I feel better. Have you had that experience? I absolutely have. <laughs> right? And retail therapy, I think, is what they call it, right? We've been wired this way that to look outside of ourselves for the answers, to look outside of ourselves for what we need. When Jesus reminds us, look inside the kingdom of God, it's within you. It's not out there. It's in, it's in here. So this work is really important work. And what we lose when we consume is that our desire, our time, 
our ability to create diminishes. Because, you know, I could spend an afternoon writing, creating, or I could just consume something that someone else has done. And so there's nothing inherently bad with watching Netflix or going to movies or going to the mall and things like that. But what it does is kind of chokes out our creative life. And we end up kind of settling for what the advertisers tell us we need rather than thinking about what do I really need? What really makes me come alive? And when we ask what makes us come alive, the answers are are so much different and more full. Our lives become more meaningful. And so that's what we're really trying to get at at this pivot is to pivot from just seeing our worth and, and what we buy to really knowing who we are, knowing that we're loved and discovering, living out who we truly are. Well, the unexpected pivot, the one that really caught me by surprise in your book, Soul Force, was the one where you looked at the concept of charity and you said, we need to pivot from charity to change. And I think that a lot of Christians are busy just trying to get to the point of charity where they can have love in their hearts for those that are in need instead of trying to fix them. So this was very unexpected to me. When we talk about pivoting from charity to change, what do you and Rashida Graham Washington mean by that shift? Yeah, this is a tough one, but an important one. There's this idea of asset-based community development, which we talk about a lot. And it's this idea of instead of looking at a person or a community for the deficits, we look for the strengths. And it's recognizing that in every person, in every place, there are gifts, strengths, and assets placed there by God. And so we never go into a a neighborhood, we never encounter a person that doesn't have a strength and an asset, right? When we believe that a place is just a place of deficit or a person is a, a person of deficit, that breeds charity, right? Because now they are just so broken. They're so, so in need. They're needy people. They need us. And so we, we kind of do the, the little that we can, right, to, to help make it a little bit better. But if we flip that and we actually go into places and, and encounter people from a place of assets, then we can say, what strengths do they have? How can they be the solution to their own problem? Maybe they just need some extra support or encouragement to see these gifts, to see these strengths. And as we do this, we realize that this really is also the gospel. When Jesus tells the disciples, you feed them. Jesus is saying, I see something in you that you have the ability to do this. Even the disciples are like, what? You're the one that everyone's coming out to, to see. You're, you're the one that has the miracles. And Jesus is like, it's your turn. And so for us to go into communities or to go into places with this mindset, it shifts the relationship. It shifts the dynamic. It, it creates more mutuality. And I think William Julius Wilson in the book, More Than Race, he actually talks about there were studies that were done, sociology studies that were done that looked at, was it individual behaviors that really brought about the most significant lasting change, or was it changes in, the, in economic and political structures? And he airs on the side after his research saying individuals can do some things to change their circumstances for sure, but the more lasting change comes from the larger structures and the systems. And so we see this in Jesus' life too. Why did Jesus challenge the Sabbath laws? He does it multiple times and you're, you're almost, you know, you're almost thinking, well, Jesus, didn't you remember that you keep forgetting the, the Sabbath? You keep healing. You, f- you keep forgetting it's the Sabbath, almost as if Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. 
But if he's doing it more than once, you got to know this is a tactic. This is a, a way that he's saying, I'm going to challenge these unjust laws that you have. This, and it's almost this unwritten thing, right? Where we've made the Sabbath into this thing that's where we're, we're not compassionate toward people. And we've made it holy to not care for our neighbor. And so Jesus challenges that and gets all up in it. But also uh, in Ephesians, Paul says, you know, what Jesus was doing on the cross was trying to tear down the whole system of hostility, that whole wall of hostility that was between Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus wasn't just dealing with the personal. He wasn't just creating a community of change agents. He was also addressing these larger systems. And so when we isolate one, when we live out of one theory of change, we can see change happen, but it minimizes, it limits what God can do because God's whole movement, God wants to change people individually. He wants to change communities and he wants to change systems. And so that's what we're really getting at in that chapter is saying, don't settle for a charity mindset when we could be a force for justice. We could be a force for change and for the gospel to really have a holistic movement and impact. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Sean Castleberry. Along with Rashida Graham Washington, he's written the recent book, Soul Force, Seven Pivots Toward Courage, Community, and Change. Castleberry is a writer, speaker, activist, and he's the executive director of Mission Year, a national faith-based organization that develops young leaders and makes collective impact for change in urban communities. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Sean Castleberry. He's a writer, speaker, activist, and he's the executive director of Mission Year, which is a national faith-based justice-centered organization that develops young leaders and makes collective impact in urban communities. We're talking about a book that he's recently co-authored with Rashida Graham Washington called Soul Force, Seven Pivots Toward Courage, Community, and Change. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you were raised as a preacher's kid. You've spent your entire life in the church. So the gospel and the stories of Jesus Christ were never alien to you. But I wonder, as you've been doing this work, both academically and in the streets of Chicago, how you have seen your own faith life mature and change. My faith has come alive in a way. I, th- I always had read the sto- gospel stories, but... When I came to the city and decided to to live in the neighborhood where I'm living, the gospel stories came to life. I was encountering the gospel on a daily basis through the people that I encountered. I realized, you know, following Jesus will always lead us to the margins. And the places, whenever I went to the, the margins, that's where I seemed to encounter Jesus the most. And it makes sense because that's where Jesus told us we would find him. 
right? When you do it for the the least of these, right? When you when you visit the prisons, when you go to the to the homeless, when you welcome strangers into your house, like that's that's where you'll find me. That's where um, I'll be in the midst of that. And that's what I've found is is I've encountered God undeniably, and it's made me fall more in love um, with 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 God with Jesus. I think there was a point where I was encountering a lot of the injustice in the world. I was questioning, does our faith really have an answer? Not just to the human problem of sin, my own individualistic struggle with sin. I knew that I was forgiven. I knew that there was grace for me. I had sealed that deal a long time ago. What I wanted to know now is, does God have the answer for the injustice and the inequity and the violence and all of these the the harass, you know atrocities uh, that we see in our in our world and i i came to a point in my faith where i almost came to that point where like god if you don't care about this i don't know if i can keep going i don't know if i can i can trust you and it was at that point that I really started looking at the scriptures around God's heart and God's heart for justice, God's heart for the marginalized, started rediscovered the prophets. And I had always kind of skipped over the prophets and gone right into the gospel and realized, oh my gosh, there's so much richness here. And that the prophets weren't just speaking in these generalities about injustice, they were addressing specific instances of wealthy landowners that were driving off widows off their property. Micah, that's what Micah is dealing with. Injustice in the courts, in the economic system. Amos is going after that. So the prophets are addressing these specific instances, and they're saying, you can't say you're God's people if you're not caring about this. You know, most of the prophets, they get to this one point and saying, God doesn't want your sacrifices. God doesn't want your songs and your worship and your fasting. This is what God wants, that you love your neighbor, that you break the chains of oppression, that you let justice roll down like water, righteousness like a never-ending stream. And it blew me away that how much God cared for justice. I felt kind of like Job when Job's kind of challenging God and then God kind of shows up and says, you want a piece of me? You know, I had this encounter with God where God was like, my heart for justice is more intense, more enduring than you could ever imagine in your finite mind. And so as you had this moment, your Job moment of challenging God, saying, are you really committed to this, God? Would you call that a crisis of faith, or have you had a crisis of faith? Or was that just more a moment of, of transition where you, your faith deepened? I'd say it was a conversion. I used to think that there was just, you know, we're converted once. But I'm realizing we have multiple conversions. But also, as I went to seminary, tried to figure out what just happened to me. What did God do to me? (laughs) You know, James Fowler talks about faith stages. And there's actually, he he identifies five faith stages that we kind of work through. And, you know, one of those stages is legalism, where our faith is very, very legalistic. But what of the stages move us to this this kind of universal concern for humanity this love and and a lot of times and James Fowler was a christian he, this is he he's ta- he's talking to the christian audience that our faith opens up over time we grow up thinking it's we're very tribalistic this is for me and just for us and then as we go on our faith opens up like no actually this is for 
others too, and for neighbors. And this is wider, and God's heart is expands. And uh, he uses uh, Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa and, and Gandhi, people like that, for this fifth stage. I don't know if I'm in the fifth stage, but I think I've seen a glimpse of it, and I'm going after it. And it's helped me understand that I'm on this journey with other people. And I think it's a beautiful thing when it opens up. But the other thing you asked how my faith has changed, a lot of the change in me, even discovering what soul force is, came from my neighbors in the city. It came from Antoinette and seeing her heart for the kids in our community and crying over them and praying over them and creating a family around kids that were that had incarcerated loved ones. God is trying to open our eyes that we're brothers and sisters and we have a responsibility to one another. And when we become family, everything changes. And really, if you look at the early church, they called each other brothers and sisters. Why did they do that? When one of the, the early church members was incarcerated, I read this account, they would advocate to get them out. And if they couldn't advocate, they would bribe the guards so that they could sleep in the cells with their brothers and sisters. So when Paul writes in Hebrews, remember those in prison as if you were there yourself, they took that quite literally. What if that happened? What if we remembered the poor? What if we remembered our brothers and sisters in prison as if we were there ourselves? It would change the world. I've had this expanding of who my family is. My faith is very much a part of that expansion. Well, Sean Castleberry, I have been just incredibly moved by this book that you co-wrote with Rashida Graham Washington, Soul Force. I hope that since she wasn't able to be with us today, you know, we've talked today about the book and the kind of theory. I hope that you will extend to her an invitation for both of you to come back and be on the show, because I'd love to talk to you in a second conversation about the practice, what this looks like in application to one's life. But for now, just let me say, first of all, thanks to both of you for writing this book, and thank you for taking time to talk to me and my listeners today. Oh, thank you for having me. We've been speaking today with Sean Castleberry. He's a writer, speaker, activist, and he's the executive director for the past 15 years of Mission Year, a national faith-based justice-centered organization focused on developing young leaders and making a collective impact for change in urban communities. He's the author and co-author of several books, including God is in the City, Encounters of Grace and Transformation. We've been discussing a recent book that was co-written with Rashida Graham Washington, Soul Force, Seven Pivots Toward Courage, Community, and Change. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. 
I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.